Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Thanks so much, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Uh, do keep that passage of the Bible open, and there's a little outline on the inside of your notice sheet if you uh, would like to follow on with that. And uh, here's the question I would like us to ponder today. Does the church have anything to offer? Does the ordinary local church, uh, a church like ours, have anything to offer in today's world? That's a question we can ask from a few different uh, angles, few different standpoints. Perhaps you're a visitor today. Uh, perhaps you're not usually a churchgoer. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian, and you're wondering, why is any of this worth my time? Does this church have anything to offer me that I can't get elsewhere? There are loads of other clubs and societies I could join. There are other religions out there. There are other books I could read. I could just lie in on a Sunday morning. Does the church have anything to offer? Or perhaps you're thinking about that as a church member. You come to church, you're a Christian, but you're also living your life in the world. And as you look around, you worry that you're the only person in your workplace that believes this stuff, that your children are being taught things at school that seem to contradict the Bible and its implications, that your friends are doing things that you know the Bible teaches against, but you quite like to join in, and that all the noises in society seem to suggest that being a Christian is actually a bad thing for our world. And you're wondering whether there's anything really here, anything the church really has to offer that would keep you being Christian in a world that says you shouldn't be. I'm just going to move this up. Is that okay? Or perhaps you're uh, thinking about that in terms of the church's mission. We want people to become Christians. We want people to come to know Jesus Christ. But the church seems very small and weak and insignificant. There are a couple of hundred people in our church. Widen that out to all the churches in Lancaster, you'd maybe get 1,500 at a push. It's a drop in the ocean, isn't it? We had a great time last week at our Morecambe Bay Fellowship prayer tea. Nearly 300 people gathered to pray for our region. That's fantastic. But it's half a million people in our region. And very few people are knocking on our doors asking what it is we believe. Very few people are coming to ask us our opinion on what's going on in our world. We are uh, small, or we seem small and weak and insignificant. Does the church have anything to offer to this world? Well, to this passage, which is the, uh, in this passage, which is the very heart of the letter that we're studying this term, Paul is going to give us a beautiful, powerful picture of the church and the church's mission. He's going to show us that a, a way of life is on offer that is hopeful and purposeful and good. And he's going to assure us that the local church has everything it needs to live well and go about its mission. And so whether you're part of a church or not this morning, 
I hope you will see that because the local church lives out and proclaims the gospel of Jesus, it offers you the most precious thing in the world. It's a short passage today. We have just three verses to look at, uh, but they are very, very rich verses indeed. And we're going to look at two, under two headings, which correspond to two big ideas that Paul wants Timothy and all of us to think about. The first idea is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Look at verse 14 with me. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, one of the great blessings and curses of life in our modern world is the ability to communicate very quickly. Uh, it's a blessing, isn't it, when we send our kids off on a trip or we haven't seen someone for a while, we're a bit worried about them. We want them to know, we want to know they're okay. It's very easy to drop them a text. You get the reply, I've got here safe, I'm fine, mum, leave me alone. It's all very reassuring. Uh, it's a curse as well, of course, uh, not only because as, as reducing all of our rich human interaction to 20 words on a tiny screen, it also means that if we don't get a text, if we don't hear from our kids every day, if you send a message to someone and the little blue ticks come up that says they've seen it and they don't reply for 45 minutes, then we just assume either they must have fallen foul of some horrible calamity or they just hate us now. Uh, interesting that the thing which promises to reduce our anxiety just increases it. A topic for another time. But we're thinking about here, as Paul says in verse 14, that he's actually planning to visit Ephesus pretty soon. He's going to pay Timothy a visit. He's going to give him some instruction, help him with the running of the local church under his care. But something about the situation in Ephesus means that that visit can't come soon enough. Paul is concerned, he's worried, he's anxious about what's going on in Ephesus, and so he sends a letter in advance just in case he is delayed for whatever reason. Now that tells us something about this letter, doesn't it? It tells us that this letter should be read as addressing a matter of some urgency. This isn't a sort of general letter. Paul didn't think, oh, I think I'll write to Timothy this week. And brewing some ideas about how to run a church might be the time to commit them to paper. No, this is an impassioned, urgent response to a serious threat in the church. And in Ephesus, that is the threat of false teaching. We've seen it all the way through this sermon series that some in the church, including perhaps some in the eldership, have started teaching something different to the gospel of Jesus. We've already seen they have a particular focus on the Old Testament law and on genealogies and myths. We're going to see next week they have a particular set of rules about what you can and can't do. They're forbidding marriage and forbidding certain types of food. And that, as we saw last week, poses a twofold threat. They're both upsetting the faith of those inside the church and compromising the church's mission to those outside. This is a massively urgent problem. And Paul gets to the root of why it's such a problem in verse 15. He says there, it's vitally, urgently important that people know how to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's very important, says Paul, that we know how to conduct ourselves in God's household. I wonder if you've ever been uh, somewhere where you were very aware that you didn't quite know how to behave perhaps even to the house of someone from a different culture, and you, you won't know, wouldn't know what to do. Do I, do, I, do I take my shoes off or not? How do I eat this food that's presented to me? We all know there are pitfalls to do with something being perfectly acceptable in one culture, but massively offensive in another, and perhaps that puts us on edge. Or perhaps you went to a posh event or a fancy restaurant and you didn't know quite what to do, 
Apologies if you're like posh, fancy people and you know exactly what to do. I don't know what to do. I went to a coffee shop a few years ago with someone from our church family who very kindly bought me a coffee. And when it arrived, the server asked whether I'd like some milk. And I said, yes, please. And he said, oh, well, we strongly recommend you drink it black, but whatever. And I felt like I'd broken some kind of unwritten rule that no one had told me about, that my behavior was sort of not fitting for this particular coffee shop because I'd asked for milk, or rather I was offered milk as a test <laughs> and said yes. I won't mention the name of the coffee shop. You probably guess which one it is. Um, perhaps you felt like that coming to our church. Perhaps you weren't sure how to dress. You don't know any of the songs. You're not sure where to sit or what some of the words mean. Hopefully, in our church at least, we're, we're working hard to make that easier for you if you're a newcomer. But is that what Paul's talking about here? Just a sort of stuffy code of conduct, the proper etiquette, the club rules that everyone should follow? Well, no. Paul says that we should know how to live in the household of God. That, that's the metaphor that Paul's been working with all the way through this letter, the truth that he wants us to grasp, that the church is God's family. The church is not a building or an institution or just a club. It's a household, the family of God. And, and Paul's simple point is that people in the family of God will and ought to demonstrate something of the family likeness. The adopted child who refuses to sit with the rest of the family at mealtimes, who will not go out with the family on their day trips, who will not take the family surname, is not yet demonstrating that he is part of the family. Those in the household of God must begin to bear the family likeness. And why does any of that matter? It matters because of what the church is. Paul says that the church is a pillar and foundation of the truth. He invites us to consider the church like a building, not that the church building is the church, but that the people of the church, the family of the church, are a bit like a public building, a building which provides a visible structure to support the truth of the gospel. The church, says Paul, shores up the gospel truth like a foundation, and it holds up that gospel truth to public view like a pillar. That's the image he wants us to have in our minds, that the church provides a solid foundation for the truth and a public display of the truth. Now, we might think that's a bit odd, because surely it's the other way around. Surely the truth is the foundation of the church. Surely it's the truth that gives the church its identity and its stability and which gives the church its position as a public community of faith, not the other way around. Of course, that's true as well. We see that in places like Ephesians 2 verse 20, which says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's the word of God which forms the church. There's no sense whatsoever that it's the church's job to invent the truth or define the truth. No, but it is the church's job to uphold the truth, to protect it and display it. Now, if you think about it, that metaphor of, of a public building with foundations and pillars is a very good one for this. Because all public buildings protect and display some kind of message, some kind of story about what life ought to be about. A story that everyone in that public building has to buy into. So you go into a bank. If you go into a bank, you'll be given a message about how financial security and financial planning are very important things. And every employee of that bank, if you ask them, will tell you the same thing and give you that same message. And you would hope that every employee of that bank has some kind of measure of financial good sense in their life. Or if you were in Ephesus, where would you go? Well, the, the Ephesus was dominated by the great temple of Artemis. 
Remember the chant of the Ephesians when Paul visited and brought them the gospel? They chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. To be an Ephesian was to be a worshiper Artemis at this time. And her temple is one of the wonders of the ancient world. Massive structure built high on a hill with a foundation that was praised by Pliny the Elder. I'm sure you're all in the habit of reading Pliny the Elder. As being incredibly solid in a town known for its earthquakes and with its roof held up with 127 marble pillars. So what does that temple, what does that pillar and foundation say? The temple of Artemis says to the whole world, it says to the people of Ephesus, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It publicly declares that. Now, what if you were to go in to the temple of Artemis and speak to the priests of Artemis and say to them, all right, then tell me about this Artemis, what's her deal? And they say to you, ah, she's not that great. No, wouldn't bother with her if I were you. Or we went into the temple of Artemis, who was the goddess of chastity and virginity and sexual purity, and you found two of her worshippers sleeping with each other. You would think there's something, something really wrong here. This building is saying one thing, but the people who are part of this building are saying something completely different, and you probably wouldn't bother investigating Artemis any longer. Well, it's the same dynamic here. The church is the community on earth where God's truth is made known. The church doesn't define God's truth, but it proclaims it and it lives it out. And so if someone comes into our church meeting and finds elders who are teaching something completely different to the gospel and sees people in the church, especially as we saw last week, the named public leaders and servants of the church, living lives which are completely at odds with the gospel, what will this say? They'll say, this is all wrong. And clearly this Jesus fellow is not worth bothering with. And so Paul wants Timothy to know, and God wants us to know, that it really matters what we teach, and it really matters how we live, because of our identity, because of who we are, because we're the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The gospel has been entrusted to us to protect, to safeguard against the earthquakes of false teaching, and to proclaim to a world which needs to hear about the salvation of Jesus. Now, as we saw last week in particular, that's a great and awesome responsibility for us, especially for elders and team leaders. But I also want us to see that this is a tremendous privilege. Notice that Paul says that God's household is the church of the living gods. We should know that the word church is, not, is a word for a congregation, a gathering, an assembly. Paul isn't talking about sort of the capital C church, as in all the Christians in the whole world at any given time. He isn't talking about a superstructure or a denomination or an institution. He's just talking about a, a local group, a particular gathering, an ordinary local church. He says this is the gathering of the living gods, the God who made and rules the universe, the God who is the sustainer of all things, the God who gives life, has brought us, little old us, together to be his means of safeguarding and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And that's true of every gospel-believing local church. Paul isn't saying, come on, guys, work hard, because you really should be the pillar and foundation of the truth. No, he's saying you are the pillar and the foundation of the truth. As Jesus says to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. As Jesus says in Revelation 1, his churches are his lampstands, the means by which he's casting the light of the gospel uh, to a world that desperately needs to hear it. And this 
was the plan all along. I wonder if you'd turn back with me to Genesis 18. Keep a finger in 1 Timothy. Turn back with me to Genesis 18. Right at the very beginning of God's uh, purposes where he has made uh, promises to Abraham and Abraham's family. Promises which they're living out in among other nations that aren't doing that. So this particular chapter is about Sodom and Gomorrah, places of, of wickedness and cruelty. And look what verse 18 says of chapter 18. This is the Lord speaking. And he says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Remember, that was the great promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. And look at verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. See the dynamic here? God has made a promise to Abraham to be a blessing of the nations. And he says to Abraham, look, you've got to direct your household well so that that can come true. This is a dynamic that was never really fully realized among Abraham's household and Abraham's children. But Paul says here in 1 Timothy 3, this is what's happening here. It is not ultimately Abraham's household that is going to bless the whole nations. It's this household, a local church, all these local churches together are going to be the means for the whole world to be blessed. And so they must be households that live in a way that pleases the Lord. The local church is the means by which he's casting the light of the gospel on a world. His churches are his salvation plan. This is plan A and there is no plan B. And so all of that ought to give us a great sense of purpose to our lives. We might think, what am I, what am I really doing in this world? Ever had that thought? You know, it gets to Thursday. And you just think, is this it? I'm trying to be a Christian at work. I'm hoping for an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Trying to raise my kids to know Jesus. Got a little role at church sometimes. Reading my Bible every day and praying. I'm going to my growth group in church on Sunday. Is that it? The answer is yes, that's it. That life, well lived, can make a difference to other people's eternal destiny. It can increase the honor of God in the world. It can please your creator. It can bring him joy. And it can fulfill all of his purposes since the beginning of time. There is no greater purpose, no higher calling than living well in the household of God. So how do we go about it? What kind of way of life is appropriate within this household? That brings us to Paul's second big idea, which is the mystery of godliness. Look at verse 16, where he says, Beyond all question... The mystery of godliness is great. Now, it's worth noting this could have been, don't know for sure, but this could have been the language that some of the false teachers were using. This idea of the mystery of godliness, that is, we have the secret to a life pleasing uh, to God. After all, uh, the false teachers we know were delving back into the Old Testament law and making a big deal of genealogies and the meanings of words. It is possible they were saying, you know, we've unearthed a secret meaning in the Old Testament text that we alone can teach you. They wouldn't be the first to make that claim. They weren't the last either if they were. And if that's right, the reason Paul says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, is him saying, well, yeah, I agree. The mystery of godliness is great but they're not teaching it to you. Let me tell you about the mystery of godliness. Because if Paul is using some of the false teacher's languages, language, he is definitely putting his own spin on it. The word mystery 
is one used by Paul throughout his letters, and it always has the same meaning. It doesn't mean something spooky or cryptic. It doesn't mean something that you have to be a super intelligent private detective to discover. No, it simply means something that once was hidden, but is secret no longer. Uh, Let me show you a couple of examples on the screen from Paul's letters. First, from Romans 16. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed, and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Or Ephesians 3. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And then he just tells us what it is. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. You see, I could multiply many of those examples For Paul, a mystery is something that before Jesus was not yet revealed, something latent in God's salvation plan, but which has now burst onto the scene and which changes everything. Changes, for example, the way you read the Old Testament to start with. Now, as we look at Jesus, we see that the whole Old Testament was pointing towards him. We we see things in there that we didn't quite understand. We didn't realize were so important until Jesus came. That was Paul's own experience. As someone schooled by the Pharisees in the Old Testament law, he hated Jesus and he hated the church until he met the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. It instantly transformed his whole perspective on the scriptures he thought he knew. And Paul says that the mystery of godliness has now been revealed. And what do we mean by that? That word godliness doesn't mean behaving yourself. It's a word which means reverence or piety Other translations might say religion, as in a whole life of being devoted to God. A whole way of life which reflects God, which pleases God, which loves what God loves and hates what God hates, which is like God. This is the life well lived, if you like. The life of which the author of the universe approves of. That's what's on display, says Paul, in the local church, and that's what's now revealed. We we know what that life looks like now. And he tells us the mystery in these six short lines, divided into three sets of two. I'll be honest, there's so much in these short sentences, we could spend a lifetime thinking about them. But all we're going to do now is briefly think about each pair of lines and see how each one helps the truth to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth. For each pair, we're going to see how it guards against error and how it offers something wonderful to the outside world. But before we get into those lines... You have to see something very obvious which we might well overlook and that's that godliness is about jesus do you see that you see one of the reasons that these verses are slightly tricky is that we might expect paul to say great is the mystery of the gospel he appeared in the body was vindicated by the spirit etc etc we expect that don't we but he doesn't say that he says great is the mystery of godliness and then tells us about jesus why is that Why, when talking about godliness, about a life well lived, about a way of life which God approves of, does Paul tell us a load of stuff about Jesus? Two reasons, I think. The first reason is that Jesus makes possible the only way anyone can be godly. The only way anyone can possibly hope to relate to God and please God in the first place. 
Remember what we've been seeing all the way through this letter, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. God's wrath remains on us. And so however we live our lives, that fundamental problem is not solved. If you haven't got Jesus, godliness is completely off the table. Now I realize what a strong and provocative thing that is to say. We might think saying things like that does not seem particularly kind to those who think differently, who follow other religions or who follow none at all. After all, we're told repeatedly that we can be good without God, that Christians don't have a monopoly on good behavior. And all of us see, don't we, the kindness and goodness of our non-Christian friends. This is not about goodness, it's about godliness. It's about a life which not only does good, but a life which God himself approves of. It's about relationship with our living God, with our creator. And so ultimately, it has to be about salvation first, about the removal of God's wrath from us, about the forgiveness of our sins. And that means it has to be about Jesus. It is not kind when on a sinking ship to be equivocal about the location of the lifeboats. To say, ah, it doesn't really matter what you believe about where the lifeboats are. Surely we can live a good life together here on this ship. Now, in that context, if the ship is sinking, we must point people to the only way to be saved. Without Jesus, godliness is completely off the table. And remember the context. Paul has already said the same thing about the Jewish law, about God's law. The false teachers were trying to make that law into a means of godliness for the church. To make it the way uh, where they were to relate to God and be devoted to him. Paul says, no, even the very, very good law of God can't do that. And if the law can't do it, nothing else can. Only Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, can save people. His is the only lifeboat without a hole in it. And therefore, he is the only way anyone can live a godly life. But it's not just that Jesus makes godliness possible. It's that he shows us a pattern for living out that godliness. And that's what we're going to see in these six lines. Let's read them again. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. In the first two of those lines, we see that godliness is both earthly and spiritual. We read there that Jesus appeared in a body. He was, as we were thinking about over Christmas, God made man, God come down, God in human flesh. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for a thousand reasons, but here's one. It's that Jesus has made God known to us here in our world. He has taken on our existence, our humanity. God has come to us rather than us trying to find a way to God. You see, the way of godliness The way of life which God approves is not about us going on some mystical quest to find God or find our own spirituality or find our way to heaven. No, this is about God coming to meet us on earth in the body and in the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth. Godliness is earthly. But godliness is also spiritual. It says here that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. We might wonder what that means or when that happened. I think the closest parallel we have in Paul's other writings is in Romans 1. This should be on the screen. Where he says, The gospel about his son is about his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See that Paul there again tells us that Jesus was earthly, 
had a human nature. He was a descendant of David. In that sense, he was a son of God. But the Spirit declared him to be the son of God at his resurrection. See, the world said about Jesus, this man is a troublemaker and a rebel and a liar and a nuisance and he deserves to die. But in the resurrection, as the spirit of life brought Jesus back from the dead, God says, no, this man is my son and he does not deserve to die. That is what is vindicated by the spirit means. It means that God has set his stamp of approval on Jesus in contrast to the world's disapproval of him. What does all this mean? For our godliness. What is Jesus patterning to us there? What about our way of life in the household of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth? For every one of these three pairs, I'm going to give us two errors it guards against and one offer it makes. Two errors, one offer. The first error it guards against is thinking that godliness is somehow is about somehow being freed from the world. That it's about some kind of spiritual life which is detached from the things of earth that it's about going on some kind of mystical or contemplative quest to find God or attain heaven. Now, I'm going to say much more about that next Sunday because we're going to see that one of the false teachings in Ephesus was to do with denying things like marriage and certain food, denying earthly things. But that is not godliness. No, godliness is about Jesus coming to reveal God to us, coming in the flesh to save us, and therefore saying a big yes to God's creation and to a life lived in the real world that God has made. More on that next week. The second error it guards against against, is to think that this world is what life is all about. If we think that... We will live for the pleasures that this world has to offer, like money, as the false teachers were living for in chapter 6, and we're going to live for the approval of other people. We'll accommodate our behavior and our teaching to only do and say that which our culture approves of. And in doing so, we'll depart from the truth and depart from holding out the gospel of salvation. We'll have a lovely, nice time playing around on the deck of the ship as it sinks under the waves. Godliness is about looking to God's stamp of approval, to look forward to the vindication of the spirit of holiness, which means that even if we face disapproval and persecution in our world, even if people come into the household of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and say, I don't like any of this, and try to burn the whole thing down, then we will know we are safe and secure in the vindication of the spirit, just as Jesus was, and look forward to the new creation. Godliness is about the things of earth, It's about Jesus coming down to us. But it's not about, uh, it's not as if this world is all there is, as if all we have to do is find approval in this world. Those are the two errors. Here is the one offer. The offer that we make to a watching world, the offer that God makes to you today, if you are not yet a member of the household of God, which is this. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know the God who made you? Do you want to know that he loves you and he wants a relationship with you? Do you want to know forgiveness and a way of life which isn't about some kind of super spiritual detachment from the world, but is life well lived in God's world? Do you want to stop anxiously living for the approval of others and come to have the settled approval and welcome and love and forgiveness of the God of the universe? Well, that is available in Jesus. Second pair of lines. Paul says that Jesus was seen by angels, was preached among the nations. And in this, we see that godliness is powerful and missional. 
The scene by Angel's line is the trickiest bit of this little poem, I think. Angels are the most powerful messengers of God, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see they surround Jesus' ministry, and especially they appear at key moments. They announce his birth, they testify to his resurrection, they explain his ascension. But I think the idea of being seen by angels is, is less to do with the fact that angels were sort of around at key points in Jesus' life, and more to do with the fact that Jesus' life is a revelation to the angels themselves. Jesus' work makes known something to spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. And let me again uh, show you a couple of cross-references on the screen to see that. Firstly, 1 Peter 1, where Peter says, It was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Angels are amazed by the revelation of the gospel. Or Ephesians 3. Uh, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see that? This is the same church, by the way, that he's writing to, that he wrote 1 Timothy to. The church makes known God's purposes even to those in the heavenly realms. The gospel lived out and demonstrated and proclaimed in the church shows the angels in the heavenly realms that Jesus is Lord, that the cross is his victory, and that the church is his trophy. In other words, godliness is very powerful. When men and women, boys and girls, live for Jesus and like Jesus in his church, even the unseen spiritual world is taken aback, just as it was by Jesus himself. Godliness is powerful, and godliness is missional. Second half of this pair, Jesus was preached among the nations. The preacher and church leader, Dick Lucas, commenting on this passage, said that the problem with the false teachers was that they were, quote, insider men. They were teaching the church private spiritual codes of living, turning them inwards by making rules about life which were based on the particular national law of Israel. They were all about regulating life on the inside and keeping the people away from the outside world. But Jesus has been preached among the nations. Not just in Israel, but in every tribe and culture and language, Jesus has something to say. He has a message of salvation for the whole world. And so godliness is not about insider codes and private tracks. No, it's a way of life that looks outside, which is about the proclamation of the gospel to all people, all kinds of people, as we've seen already, from kings and rulers to widows and slaves, from Jews to Gentiles. Jesus must be preached among the nations. Godliness is missional. So two errors, one offer. The first error this guards against is thinking the church is weak. We know our own failures, don't we? We know our own weaknesses and smallness, our sin and struggles and suffering. And so we might think, well, we're making no impact whatsoever. But the gospel preached and the gospel lived out is incredibly powerful. If nothing else... It is making a huge impact on the spiritual realm. Think of Job in the Old Testament, undergoing immense suffering and hardship and not being at all clear why any of it was happening. He was clinging on to faith, trying to defend God and defend the path of godliness to his friends who wanted to persuade him to try a different gospel, a gospel of works righteousness, and Job saying, no, 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 I, I still believe in this God, you know. Job's way of life was vindicated in the end. But what did it all achieve? 
There's no evidence that his friends were persuaded by him. But we as readers of Job know what it achieved. We know that by Job's clinging on to faith and proclaiming truth in the midst of intense hardship and suffering, that Satan was dealt a hammer blow in the spiritual realms and that God's glory was magnified. It's powerful, the church, you know. Second error, therefore, is turning inwards because we don't really, we sort of stop trusting that the preached word can actually do anything. A few years ago, we were on holiday in Wales and we went to a church. It was a lovely meeting in many ways. We were welcomed and taught very well. But for the last 20 minutes of the meeting, the preacher told his church that there was absolutely no point any of their church trying to tell their friends about Jesus. And that was because the Lord had not recently sent revival on his church. You may know uh, that in Wales, God has done amazing things, where at particular times in history, the church has experienced uh, extraordinary seasons of evangelistic success. I've been to some of these small, church, small towns in Wales, and there's like five or six massive church buildings, and they're all built in 1904. Ever wondered why that was? It's because in that year, thousands and thousands of people became Christians all at once in Wales. Amazing. But the preacher told us that we were not at that time. So there's no point evangelizing because it wouldn't work. Instead, the church should commit themselves to praying for revival and waiting for the Lord to act. I've got nothing against prayer meetings. May the Lord bring revival to Wales and to Lancaster and to the world. Amen to that. But I was worried. I was worried that the preacher had lost some of his trust in the power of preaching and in the church's role as a community on mission for Jesus, whatever the season. See, we need to remember that Jesus was preached on among the nations. And God in us means taking our place in that mission as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. There's the errors. Here's the offer. Do you want to be part of something that's truly making an impact? That appears to be a huge concern, particularly among young people in our world today. It's often listed as the most important thing to look for in a new job. Does it make an impact? Young people, do you want to make an impact in this world? Do you want to do something useful and impactful? In this? Oh, I just use the word impactful. So sorry, that's not a word. Um, I don't know uh, what careers are the most impactful, did it again, in our world. I I can't do careers advice, really. I'm not really sure anybody can. Uh, But if you really want something that's going to make an impact, sorry if you're a careers advisor, if you really want something that makes an impact, here's a thing that's going to make an impact, a life of godliness. A life spent living for Jesus and like Jesus in the local church is powerful, it's missional, It makes a difference to people's eternal destiny, and it astonishes even the angels in the spiritual realms. There's the offer. Finally, and much more briefly, godliness is faithful and hopeful. Last two lines of the poem. Jesus was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Jesus was believed on in the world. Again, that reminds us of the power of the gospel, As Jesus was preached on in the nations, people became Christians. Imagine that. But it also reminds us that the path of godliness is by faith in Jesus. It's by believing in him. It's not by works. Again, godliness is not a ladder or a quest for us to get up to God. No, it's the glad acceptance that God has come down to us in Christ and offer us salvation through faith alone. Godliness is faithful. It's about trusting Jesus. And godliness is hopeful. What future ought we to expect for our church? Things sometimes look a little bit uncertain, don't they? 
Will we have enough money to keep ourselves going to do our building projects? Will we have some kind of revival? Will we suddenly grow as God brings in lots of people so we have to do another building project to fit everyone in? Or will increasing persecution mean that we lose our building and we watch our pastors go to prison and we have to split into small house churches as some of our brothers and sisters around the world have, have had to do? Don't know, got no idea. What I do know is what Paul says in the last verse of this little hymn. He says, Jesus was taken up into glory. He suffered and died under persecution as his little band of disciples all abandoned him. And yet the Spirit vindicated him through resurrection. The church were empowered for mission. The gospel was preached and believed on in the world. And Jesus ascended into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of God, where he rules in glory and he will do for all eternity. And we, his family, can be sure that whatever our short-term future, no idea, this is our destiny, this is our future, this is who we are too. Two errors, one alpha. The first error is thinking too much of ourselves. So much false teaching comes from pride. The pride of thinking that we can do something about our salvation, that, that we, by our rules and our laws and our rituals and our religion, that we can earn our godliness, earn our right standing before God. That's what the false teachers, it seems, were at least uh, saying to some extent. But the mystery of godliness revealed in Christ says no. Salvation is by faith alone. Godliness is by faith alone. And that ought to keep us humble, keep us from entitlement and pride, keep us looking to Jesus to save us. Keep us as a church family living lives of repentance and faith. Rebuking and challenging and encouraging each other to keep looking to Jesus, to not be proud, to keep repenting and believing. But the second error is despair, which is not the same thing as humility, by the way. Being humble isn't about being pessimistic or downbeat. No, the mystery of godliness, the way of life that Jesus has inaugurated and lived out and now calls us to is profoundly hopeful. It's about knowing that suffering is real, but the glory is coming. It's about knowing, as the author to the Hebrews says, that Jesus faced the scorn and shame of the cross, knowing that joy came on the other side. It's about knowing, as the psalmist says, that weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Jesus was taken up to glory, and so we will be too. And so here is the final offer as we conclude this morning. Do you want hope? Do you want hope for the future? Do you want joy? Do you want eternal life? And are you worried you might not get it? Are you worried that all your efforts, all your striving, all your attempts to make a good life for yourself might, not, might come to nothing? Are you feeling hopeless in the face of your own, your own inability to be the person that everyone says that you should be? Are you worried about your relationship with God and scared of death because deep down you know there's something on the other side of death and you fear you won't be able to face it? Well, here is the offer. Take hold of real hope, real joy for the future by abandoning all trust in yourself. Don't rely on what you can do, but take hold by faith of what Jesus has done and have the hope of glory. And if you've done that already, if you're a member of the household of God, then rejoice that the mystery of godliness is revealed and is yours in Jesus. 
rejoice that we get to be us. Can you believe it? We get to be the pillar and foundation of the truth here in Lancaster. And commit yourself for living, to living for Jesus and for living like Jesus in community with each other, helping each other do that, knowing that it carries with it the approval of God himself and the sure hope of a glorious future. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has revealed the mystery of how to relate to you, of how to live a good life, of how to be saved. It is through his work, through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Thank you that he has enabled us, sinners as we are, to be in good relationship with you, to have the sure and certain hope of the future. And thank you that he has shown us, he has patterned for us a way of life which is good and godly. It's not a life which avoids suffering. And we confess our our sin to you, we acknowledge our struggles and suffering to you. But we thank you, Father, that as we live in this world, as we uh, struggle, as we suffer, as as we sin and repent and trust in Jesus, that is holding something out to the world which is powerful. We pray that many would come to know Jesus through our life and our witness here as a local church. Pray for other churches in Lancaster and in our region, in our world, that they too would live out their full calling as the pillar and foundation of the truth to your glory. We thank you that for your extraordinary grace that you've offered us and which you hold out through us to others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. children are going to come back in in a few minutes and by um before we sing our final song so as they're heading back why not uh have a little think about what we've been looking at today perhaps read back through the passage perhaps pray uh, about what you've been learning and then michael introduce the final song